From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. We wanted to be a B2B business. We wanted to focus on industry. And we didn't want to focus on any of the consumer or personal aspects of 3D printing, which of course has like very valid businesses of its own, but it was just not our area of interest. Um, we by definition had to sell to large corporations and large organizations because these were our only customers. Um, but of course the issue is, you know, when you're very small, it's very hard to get your foot in the door. It's very hard to um, beat the right people. It's very hard to have the credibility. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely very hard, um, and, and I think any any small company would say that it's very hard to sell to a large organization. Um, one of the things that is true about B two B sales is that it takes a very very long time. So you meeting someone today may not result in you getting a contract in your hands, you know, in years. That was Annie Wang. Annie is the president of Senball a global leader in data for added manufacturing. At Senval, Annie has overseen the creation of Senval ML, which is a data-driven machine learning software for additive manufacturing. Annie's area of focus is on analyzing correlation among material properties, process parameters, and feedstock properties. Annie is actively involved in activities across the AM industry. She is vice chair of the SAE Data Management Committee, serves on the Data Integrity Advisor Group and Commercialization Advisor Group for America Makes, and is a member of the ASTM F42 Committee for Additive Manufacturing Technologies. She joins the show today to talk about her startup journey with Senval, along with a multitude of cutting-edge projects that Senval has developed over the history of their company. Annie, welcome to the show. Why don't we get started? Thank you. Have you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is uh, Annie Wang, and I'm one of the co-presidents of Senval. Um, and Senval is a, a data, database, and software-focused company that serves exclusively the additive manufacturing industry. Um, and we have been operating since, I think it's 2013 now. So it's... Uh, almost eight years, I guess. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's been a great journey. And so for the audience that may not be familiar with Sunvolve, kind of, can you give an example of some work or types of projects or kind of software that, that you've developed? Yeah, sure. Um, I think for the um, average person, the Sunvolve database is probably something that they might have come across or something that they might have used. Um, we developed the Senval database very early, um, in the early days of Senval. And what happened was that um, in the early days, we ourselves would get asked questions like, hey, what are all the AM machines that take titanium? Or, um, you know, or we, we ourselves were asking this question and saying things like, okay, um, of all the machines that do take titanium, what is the largest object I could fit into a machine? And there simply was no place for you to go and really search that. The only way you could do it is by, you know, going out and downloading the spec sheets of all of the machines and materials and looking through the spec sheets one by one to pull out, you know, let's say all the machines that take titanium. And then from there you would say, okay, well, what's the bounded box size of all of these machines in order to answer that question? 
And so the very first product that we actually developed was called the Sunvault Database. And it's basically a searchable database of all the machines and materials. Uh, and I want to say industrial uh, machines and materials in AM. So someone could go out and just very quickly search, um, hey, what are all the titanium materials that are out there? What machines use them? What is the size of the machine? Uh, and it's not just metals. It's across, you know, all of uh, uh, all of the different materials that are available in AM and across all of the different machines that are in AM. So that was, I think, our very first product. And it's still heavily used today, um, literally by thousands of people. Um, and then from there, we developed um, an API to the Sunball database. So software companies started inquiring us about, um, you know, downloading the data from the Sunball database. And so we developed an API that they could uh, use to pull that data into the software that they were developing. Um, we also developed um, uh, a product called the, the Sunball SOP, which is SOP stands for Standard Operating Procedure. And it's basically a manual for how to generate very pedigree to data sets um, in AM. And most recently, we are working on uh, machine learning software for AM. Um, and the focus of that is to do, to really understand, you know, the correlations between some of the things that we see in AM. Um, and it's focused a lot on uh, designing your DOE, analyzing data, um, you know, process parameter optimization, um, and things like that. And when you and Zach started the company kind of in 2013, is this kind of the path that you had laid out for yourselves and kind of doing these different product, products? Or where was the, the real founding idea for coming together to build a company in the 3D printing space? So Zach and I uh, met each other when we were both doing our MBAs. Um, and we both went into MBA. We didn't know each other going into the MBA. Um, and for both of us went into the MBA saying, hey, I really want to start my own company. Like, I want to focus on entrepreneurship. Um, and the, the founding story of Stenball is actually quite silly because we were, Zach and I happened to be in an innovations class together. And the professor asked, hey, there's this new manufacturing method called 3D printing. And he like literally took out a maker bot that was about the size of a microwave. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a 3D printer, actually. And um, he asked the, 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 the class, he said, okay, here's this new manufacturing called 3D printing. Um, if you were to start a business, uh, what would you use 3D printing for? And, and that was part of the you know, innovation of the innovation class. And um, you know, every, everyone in the class had to come up with an idea. And then people voted on ideas. So my idea was to use 3D printing to make spare parts um, in remote locations like offshore oil rigs and things like that. And Zach's idea was to make uh, use 3D printing to make uh, parts for munitions. And Zach and I were the only two people in that class who actually had a really industrially focused idea. Um, everybody else had ideas of using 3D printing to make um, it was more consumer focused or personal focused. So it was making toys, uh, making puzzles, making glasses, making jewelry. Um, and that's kind of how Zach and I met each other. Um, and we worked on this very, very initial idea, which was how do we use 3D printing to make spare parts uh, for, for industry, for, for heavy industry. 
Um, so that's how we met. And um, at the time, we really didn't know anything about 3D printing. Like I said, that the day that the MakerBot came out of the box was the day I saw a 3D printer for the first time. Um, and the first thing that we decided was, well, we had to add value to the industry. And what was the value that we were going to add was that um, Zach and I, because we were in an MBA program, we were very focused on, of course, finance and just, you know, the business aspect of running a business. And so one of the things that we did really well was we did cost modeling really well. And at the time, there was a lot of discussion about, well, what is the true cost of 3D printing something versus uh, manufacturing it using the conventional method? And so we actually started out by developing tools to help companies um, determine what is the true cost of 3D printing versus the true cost of conventional manufacturing, uh, deciding where was that, you know, uh, where was that cutoff point where, yes, it made sense to go for 3D printing or it did not make sense to go for 3D printing and you should stay within um, conventional manufacturing. So we started off doing cost modeling and a lot of consulting. Um, and then it kind of went from there. I mean, it was through the cost modeling that we needed to answer these questions like, hey, what are all the machines that take titanium? Or what is the cost of titanium? How many parts can you fit into the build uh, envelope? And that's when we decided that we needed to develop a tool that we ourselves could use, but the industry could also use. So that's how um, Central Database was born. I mean, I would say that did I ever imagine that one day I would be developing machine learning software for AM? Certainly not <laughs> At, in 2013. Um, I think that the path that has led us to where we are and every product that we developed along the way, we developed because we saw that there was some sort of market need. Um, and I think that my biggest advice for anyone who pursues entrepreneurship in any industry, in any endeavor, is that you have to add value to the industry. You have to create a service or a product that people will pay you money for. And that's actually very a very simple concept, but it's actually incredibly hard. It is incredibly hard to create a product that adds value that people would pay you for. Um, so throughout the history of Sunball and all the products that we developed along the way, including the products that we're working on now, um, that we're most focused now, which is the machine learning software, it was all in service of um, developing products and services that that would really help the industry and that our customers were asking for. Do you still remember the first true customer that you got when you first started the business? Yes, it was uh, GE. Okay. Oh, going big <laughs> right away. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Aim, aim high, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Actually, how, how we got GE as our first customer was also an interesting story because um, Zach went to a talk by Beth Comstock, who was at the time the chief marketing officer of GE. And after the talk, he kind of just struck up a conversation with her. He was telling her how he has a startup in 3D printing and he's doing the cost modeling. And then she then actually introduced Zach to some of the people inside GE who were actually doing the 3D printing. And then our very first project was um, uh, helping GE develop uh, uh, cost models comparing uh, the cost of 3D printed parts versus conventionally manufactured parts. That's great. So just some good old fashioned hustle. With, with getting... That's right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's the, that's the origin story of pretty much every startup. And you guys have continued that trend to work with a lot of kind of 
big companies throughout the time, both with the database and machine learning, kind of how have you found that process? I mean, from the outside looking in, it, I could imagine it it's kind of intimidating a small startup going to talk with kind of GE, the Department of Defense, Air Force, whoever may, you guys may be working with. Like, what's it like navigating some of those relationships as a as a startup and 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 working with some of the the bigger players out there? I mean, it's incredibly difficult. Um, we're in a B2B business. So we're focused on large or large companies because it's the large companies who actually use 3D printing in industrial in, in industrial purposes. So like the GEs of the world or the Air Force or the Army um, or like the, the defense manufacturers like Northrop Grumman and things like that. So, so because we had already decided that very early on, we wanted to be a B2B business. We wanted to focus on industry and we didn't want to focus on any of the consumer or personal aspects of 3D printing, which of course has like very valid businesses of its own, but it was just not our area of interest. Um, we by definition had to sell to large corporations and large organizations because these were our only customers. Um, but of course the issue is, you know, when you're very small, it's very hard to get your foot in the door. It's very hard to, um, beat the right people. It's very hard to have the credibility. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely very hard. Um, and, and I think any, any small company would say that it's very hard to sell it to a large organization. Um, one of the things that is true about B2B sales is that it takes a very, very long time. So you meeting someone today may not result in you getting a contract in your hands, you know, in years. Um, not, not just like a few months, um, but the, the benefit of B2B sales or a B2B focused business is that you often deal with fewer, but much larger contract amounts. Um, so you often have fewer customers, but each of those customers contribute a lot to your, to, to your revenue. So you're managing fewer relationships, um, as opposed to like uh, a B2C type business. Um, where you're managing many, many, like you in, in B2C businesses, you could literally be managing thousands or tens of thousands of, uh, of customers, but each of those amounts are, are, are really small. Um, yeah, so for, for us, uh, you know, very early on, we leveraged uh, the, the we, we leveraged the network that we had um, uh, by doing our MBA at Wharton. Um, Wharton, of course, has a great brand name. Uh, we, of course, leveraged the, you know, the credibility that we got after working with our very first client, uh, which was GE. Um, we spent a lot of our time, you know, networking and really getting to know the people in the industry. Um, so, you know, very early on, we decided, uh, you know, yes, we had to join American Makes. We had to join a lot of these industry organizations like ASTM and SME. We had to go to um, all of the conferences to, to meet a lot of people. Um, within the industry and also to learn a lot about the industry. So, um, you know, we've been attending Rapid since the very beginnings of Sunball and, and we, you know, and, and same with AMUG. Um, and later on, it was the same with Formnext. So uh, for us, it was, it, it was a multitude of different factors, but I would say generally speaking, it's always going to be difficult for a small company to try to sell to um, large players. Um, but I would say that 
the one thing that you should always keep in mind as a small company is that if you have a product or a service that your customers want, they will not care if you are small or big. They will, they, if they have a burning problem that you can solve for them, they will find a way to work with you. So in the end, it's all about how much value do you add to that customer and are you solving a burning problem that they have? For sure. And I've always found, I mean, us being in a, a similar boat with a small company, we work with big companies in, in some fashion. There's those kind of annoying bureaucratic hiccups that always come through kind of what business insurance do you have? What, uh, right. what's your Absolutely. payment? What's your PO payment <laughs> processing system? Are you going to do the work and not get paid for six months and having to hound accounting and they've never done this sort of payment to a company before. And, and so right. all these non, uh, non-trivial things that tend to pop up as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I find often those administrative tasks are a double-edged sword. It can be very hard and very long to get into the payment system of a large company. And that literally will take you months. In, in our cases, we've seen years. Um, but the double-edge is that it's hard to get in. But once you get in, uh, you are in the system. And it becomes so much easier to buy from you than to buy from somebody else if they're not in the system. So I would, I mean, my advice to any kind of B2B focused uh, entrepreneur, uh, you know, entrepreneur or startup is that it, it is, it's to have the stomach to stay in the industry for a very long time, knowing that the, 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 the amount of time it takes to network, to close deals is just very, very long. Right. And so having been in the industry for a number of years and, and seeing the many changes that have occurred in terms of different companies, different types of technologies. How do you guys kind of stay up to date or do you want to continue to focus on specific types of printing modalities, whether it's metal and you said industrial and, and that every day seems to be encompassing more in different types of processes. Do you, do you ever, do you ever think about kind of focusing on specific areas with, with some of your software and, and tools that you're building? Actually, no, that's a really great question. But the answer is no, we have never focused on one particular AM process or modality or material. Uh, for us, it's the delineation is, are you personal slash consumer focused or are you industrial? And that really cuts across almost, you know, all processes, you know, all materials, almost, almost. <laughs> um, and interestingly, you know, for us, the Sunball database is, again, it's industrially focused. It has all the industrial machines and materials in one place. Um, the standard operating procedure is definitely industrially focused because the only reason why you would want to follow in a standard operating procedure is if you're developing pedigree data sets. And the only people who would develop these kinds of pedigree data sets are the, the large industries. And again, that could be metals and non-metals and a variety of different AM processes. Um, and then the, store, uh, the, the, the solution um, that the Senval machine learning software provides is very industrially focused because it's all about um, what is the most efficient way for you to gather empirical data, designing your DOE or design of experiments, 
uh, understanding the correlations between your parameters and your um, uh, your material properties and performance, um, optimizing your parameter sets. All of these activities are focused and are done by uh, you know the industrial players. And the and all of our yeah, I mean all of our products are basically focused on industry, but not uh, not um, it doesn't focus on any kind of particular AM process or material or machine or a, a, any of that. It's, 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 it's agnostic, but the type of people who would use it are basically the industrial players. Right. And as you work with some of these in big industrial companies, do you see a similar approach when it comes to additive manufacturing and 3D printing where they're investing heavily I imagine in machines, materials, personnel to go through this process of, of qualification to build their own parts, or are they looking to kind of build a, I don't know, so we'd say like a supply chain of, of people that could support them doing this, where they kind of send out the recipe and we've qualified it on this copy, what we've done and, and build our parts. What, what's your kind of take on, and how does 3d printing move into this kind of, next level and stage where it's in more in manufacturing and qualified processes how do you but where when's the volume come in or if if the business model makes sense for for higher parts or more machines or or different types of ways to to build applications i would still say that in today's world qualification is still really challenging and certification is really challenging um there just aren't that many organizations that actually have an SOP that says, this is the exact way in which we will qualify. And this is the exact way in which we will certify AM. Um, there, there aren't that many organizations who really know how to do that. Um, and also some of the standards uh, organizations like MMPDS um, and NIAIR have been quite late in coming to the forefront and saying, okay, now we will actually write standards on how as an industry, we should qualify and, and certify. Um, what I saw in 2013 was, or you know, it's the very early days of Sunball at the time was a big emphasis on, hey, this is what we've always used, which is, hey, this is the bill plan from MMPDS on A basis or B basis allowables. This is the plan that we will use um, for AM as well. And so what people ended up doing, and actually American Makes funded a lot of projects in doing things like this, is to go out and generate very large empirical data sets at only one parameter point in the entire parameter space that might be available to you. Um, and they would generate a ton of data at that one point, and then they would go and do their statistical analysis, and then they would say, okay, based on that, um, this is my allowable for this machine and this material. But what, what ended up happening is that while it was a, a conventional process that they were very familiar with, it really didn't work for AM because it, it was a point solution. So the moment you change something about the process, whether you switched your powder suppliers or you ended up doing a software update on your machine or maybe you recalibrated your lasers, as soon as something changed, um, the, 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 the part and that material and that machine could suddenly become not qualified. And if it's no longer qualified, then what do you do with all of the empirical data and the effort that you put in to qualify it 
from the beginning. And that was one of the one of the biggest drawbacks of this kind of like um, point this point solution, this fixed way, the, the the way of essentially using what MMPDS suggested in the middle of the last century. So like around the time of the Second World War and after the Second World War, what MMPDS and the US military were doing on, on, on how, to under, how to understand qualification of medals, for example, was being applied now to like, you know, the 21st century. And that really wasn't, wasn't working. And I think people knew that it wasn't working, but there weren't any really great ideas on what could be a solution. Um, and for, for us, I mean, we saw this and, and for a long time, we didn't know what the solution was either until later on, we thought that maybe machine learning could be a really good solution for this. Um, and we basically decided, I mean, this was, bear in mind that, that while AM is maturing as an industry, the whole you know, machine learning AI world was also maturing. I mean, machine learning has actually been around. Machine learning is just math. It's been around. Like that math has been known for decades. And yet it wasn't until computing power got much stronger and faster that that kind of machine learning math could be done at scale and at speed to have the machine learning that we see today. So for example, if you go... I don't know. I mean, there's so many examples of machine learning in your everyday life that you might not even notice. But the one, the one that you might notice the most is um, the recommendations that you get when you go browse the internet. That you know, if you bought something on Amazon, Amazon will start recommending you something. If you've seen a video on YouTube, YouTube will start recommending something else. All of that is based on machine learning. So there's literally thousands of examples in how machine learning is actually interfacing with you every day, but you don't really realize it. Um, and our idea was to take machine learning and use machine learning to understand the correlation between uh, the process parameters and the material property um, and performance. And so our approach was to say, okay, I'm gonna step away from the point solution and say, well, instead of a point at which, hey, you know, only this point is the only point that's acceptable um, for you to be making uh, parts, we're gonna look at a process window or maybe a process range or a process area. And within that process range, whether you call it a process range or window or area, this is an area in which you can build uh, parts that meet the requirements uh, that, that you have set forth. So that is actually a very, very big change um, in AM uh, that, that we're proposing. And it's, uh, it, it doesn't, call for sampling data in the same way that MMPDS uh, does. And it also doesn't analyze data in the same way that MMPDS does. Um, but we see a lot of advantages. And one of the biggest advantages is that machine learning is completely um, agnostic. So you could use it for any machine, material, or process. Um, and also, the best part of machine learning is the, is the word learning, <laughs> is that it's learning when you give it new data. And so it creates a flexible model that you can then update in the future and that you can um, use data sets that you've collected before and you can apply those data sets to learn faster in new, in, in, in new experiences. Um, and, and that uh, particular area is called transfer learning. It's about 
how do you take experiences that you understand and apply it to an experience that you haven't yet seen? So uh, that's actually really useful because let's say you are, you know, building say stainless steel 316 on one type of machine, and then you want to build stainless steel 316 on a different type of machine, but those two machines are quite similar. Today, in today's world, you would almost throw away all of your old data. You would not be able to use it. But in the world of transfer learning, you would actually be able to use all of your old data and then combine it with some of the new data that you're collecting on this new machine. And eventually what that means is um, you can, you're, you're able to save time and money because in your new machine, you will no longer have to collect um, as much data as you did in the past. And you create a model that can be updated as you know, things change in the future. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And, and I imagine as you start to work or you're working with companies and, and telling people about this, I imagine there's some level of kind of pulling the, the customer along or the user along in terms of education and thinking, kind of showing them how this could work, given AM is still relatively new within a lot of organizations, not all, but quite a few, like they're taking in a, quite a lot of information, even just in kind of operating the machine and then throwing on all this additional data and qualification. In in some cases, it may be overwhelming for some organizations to to manage this and, and your tool kind of cuts through that in, in a way to, to shortcut it almost, not shortcut it, but like help with kind of that, just the ability to get to ultimately where everyone wants to be is where I can make this part reliably and I can rely on the fact that it's going to fit some spec that we've, we've determined. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we for sure encounter a lot of resistance um, because anytime you propose something new, you will, you will encounter resistance. I mean, that's kind of inevitable. Um, I think what's been really helpful for us to keep in mind is that different people and different industries and different companies are receptive at different times. There are always going to be some companies and some, some, some companies who are very innovative and just are willing to try new things. Uh, and there might be certain people within certain companies that are very innovative and willing to try new things and say, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm willing to try it and I want to try it. Um, we've had people tell us in the past that they came up with the idea of what we're working on now years ago, and they tried to propose it, but no one would listen to them. And that doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, in fact, I think that the biggest, the biggest hurdle is not technical or even scientific. The biggest hurdle for us is humans, is that humans um, often have the attitude of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, and also humans, um, you know, are very like routine and uh, habit driven creatures. So if you are an engineer and you've done something for your entire career and, you know, you're, you know, you've been working in that industry for say 30 years, it can be very, very hard to change your mind about it. We, there, was, there was actually one, there was one particular instance that happened where we were on a phone call with a, um, one of the um, really large uh, defense contractors. Uh, they did aerospace and defense. And there were two people on the call. There was an older engineer who was, I think a fellow, 
Um, so he was, of course, very senior. And then there was a younger engineer. And in the end, like Zach and I were actually like silent for most of the call because we were listening to the older engineer argue with the younger engineer. And the younger engineer was saying, I don't understand why this can't be done or like, you know, here are all the technical merits for why this could work or should work. Like here's all the scientific reasons why it would work or should work. And the older engineer, in the end, the older engineer just said, imagine you have to present this idea in front of this group of people, what would they say to you? And they would just shoot you down. Like they are going to be resistant to this idea. And there was no scientific reason for why that resistance should exist, but it, it does. <laughs> so, and I think most people um, in the industry would, would say that um, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, um, a lot of the kind of innovation that needs to happen is comes in like very small, I guess, seeds. You know, it's, it's one person in this one organization, or you know, one one small team within an organization, or one company within an industry, and they try something new, and then other people look at that and say, oh, you know, that worked. I'm now willing to try it. People are very, very resistant to being the first one to try something new. I mean, there's always going to be people who are very, very innovative and willing to, or no, and are very willing and actually eager to be the first person to try something new. Um, but it definitely takes time and, 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 and takes like a cultural shift that, uh, that takes more understanding of human behavior than it does understanding of, you know, the scientific merits of something. Yeah, I think that's a excellent point. And humans are always, in many cases, are are averse to risk. And so, if you're putting your neck on the line for this new technology or new approach, that's kind of your you have the potential to always be tied with that failure. And people overvalue right. failure in many ways. Absolutely. I mean, the the point of risk is very important because because again, you know, Sandal is focused on industry, right? So the kind of parts that people want to make are the parts that are going into planes or missiles or vehicles and, and, and lives are at risk in some cases. And if not lives, then millions of dollars of equipment could be at risk. And so by nature, the type of people that we deal with are very risk averse and they, and they should be given the, you know, the applications that they work with or the industries and companies that they work at. Um, so I think it's, so we are actually compounded by the fact that there's a baseline aversion to risk that is human. And then on top of that, we are serving industries that are all very risk averse. For sure. And, and so as we kind of wind down the conversation, we're just at the start of 2021, kind of what are some of the things that you send ball kind of thinking broadly as, as the industry progresses and over the year, what are you kind of excited about for the coming months and ahead? Um, actually, to be honest, I'm really excited about seeing people in the industry again. <laughs> um, it's been a year since I've attended, you know, any of the meetings or the conferences, and I really enjoy those. I mean, I, I, I've made friends, I mean, many friends in the industry, and I miss seeing them and being able to talk to them face to face and like hang out with them and ask them, you know, how their company is doing or what projects they're working on or, you know, how their families are doing. I, I actually really uh, miss that aspect. Um, so it's, it's, it's been rather, uh, you know, unfortunate with COVID situations. Um, but on a more technical side, I think the thing that I'm really excited about are the projects that we're working on 
um, that has to do with uh, taking a machine learning approach to developing uh, quote unquote allowable. Um, and so we're actually working on two projects, one uh, with America Makes that's actually focused on polymer materials and another project with the army that's focused on uh, metal materials um, where we're basically uh, demonstrating how you can use machine learning to gather empirical data sets, uh, to gather um, and design that empirical data set to analyze it and then from there to uh, calculate um, your quote unquote, uh, what I will call machine learning, but, to, but statistically substantiated and empirically substantiated, uh, quote unquote, allowable. Um, so I'm really excited about, about that. Um, and we, and on our army project, we actually have um, uh, an observer on our, on our project who is uh, uh, from MNPDS. So it's, it's great that we can kind of show him like, hey, this is our approach. You know, you could be an observer in our, in our, in our team and tell us what you think and how do you think this would be received um, at MMPDS? How, how should we demonstrate it? Um, so, so that's been uh, really exciting. And then the other piece of, I, think, I would say technical thing that's really exciting that we're working on is on a, um, uh, a Navy project that's working on transfer learning. And that's all about how do you uh, use data and experiences uh, from previous projects or from previous data sets to apply to new unknown and unseen uh, data sets. And, um, you know, transfer learning really has the potential to allow people to significantly reduce the number of data that they have to capture in the future, um, you know, making use of, you know, old or existing data sets that you have. Um, and, and that would help people develop allowable faster uh, and faster and cheaper, uh, qualified parts faster and cheaper, um, you know, accept changes to their AM process faster and cheaper. So for example, if they choose to change machines or update software or, you know, change their material supplier, being able to like accept those changes and kind of roll with the punches, knowing that, hey, there is a path for you to requalify and requalify quickly while you use your old data set and you generate, you know, a much smaller uh, data set for your new experience. So those are all really exciting for us. Thank you for sharing all the cool stuff that you guys are up to and, and the history. I think it's an amazing story and can't wait to see all the new things you guys are coming out with in, in the coming months and years ahead. So thank you very much. Thank you.